Thank you very much to the Boston Bar Association and welcome everyone to today's event, Environmental Justice is Front of Mind, Federal and State Agency Actions. I am Stacey Rubin. I'm the Vice President of Environmental Justice at Conservation Law Foundation. And I'm also co-chairing the BBA's Energy and Environmental Law section along with Donna Tench. My co-chair, Donna, is the Director of Clean Energy and Climate Resilience from the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. For the past two years, the Boston Bar Association's Environmental and Energy Law section has tried to plan more events focusing on environmental justice. This is the first of several events this year that will focus on the topic. In 2021, the new federal administration has made environmental justice a commonly heard phrase. We've heard about the convening of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which has issued recommendations back in May of this year. There's this Justice 40 initiative that we're gonna hear more about today. And then on the state level in March of uh, this year, after more than two decades of advocacy, Massachusetts enacted its very first environmental justice statute requiring changes to public participation and environmental review. Today's event is an opportunity to hear from two governmental leaders to give us insight about how the recent federal and state updates are being implemented. I'm gonna turn it over to Donna to introduce our fantastic panelists. Thank you, Stacey, and welcome everyone, and welcome to, to our panelists. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Rishi Reddy. Rishi is the Director of Environmental Justice for the Massachusetts Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. Before taking up this position in December 2019, she spent 25 years working as an environmental lawyer at the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection and at, U at US EPA Region 1, practicing in the areas of regulatory development, enforcement, administrative appeals, and grant development. Rishi co-founded MassDP's first Environmental Justice Committee in the mid-1990s and established the agency's Internal Language Resource Bank, which facilitates facilitates communication between the agency and Massachusetts residents with limited proficiency in English. Rishi has served on the board of the directors of South Asian American Leading Together, or SALT, a national civil rights organization. Rishi is also the award-winning author of two works of fiction, Passage West, a novel that was published in 2020, and Karma and Other Stories uh, uh, that was published in 2007. Welcome, Rishi. And next is Marcus Holmes. He's the Environmental Justice Coordinator for EPA Region 1. He assumed this position also in 2019. Before taking the position, Marcus had spent 13 years at EPA, first in the Brownfields Unit as a project officer, managing assessments and cleanup grants. And he also served as the lead for regional job training programs. After five years in Brownfields, Marcus moved into the emergency response and worked on an on as an on-scene coordinator for over 10 years, responding to local and national incidents, including Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and Deepwater Horizon BP oil spill in the Gulf of New Mexico. Marcus earned a BS in mathematics at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, which is one of the nation's top HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities. He also holds a bachelor's in civil engineering from Georgia, Georgia Institute of Technology and in May of this year, Marcus joined many of us and earned his JD from New England School of Law, 
So Marcus is a lawyer who knows math. Go Marcus. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> so I'll uh, start off the questions and um, to both of you and whoever wants to start first, I guess we could go with Rishi first. What does environmental justice mean to you, Rishi? Thank you, Donna. And thank you for inviting us to this forum. I always um, enjoy and welcome the opportunity to talk about the EJ work at the States to get the word out. And um, I really appreciate being here. So thank you to you and Stacy and the Boston Bar Association. So I'm gonna leave to Marcus the federal definition and the formal definition of EJ because you know they do it much better than us and we sort of follow their lead in terms of the formality of that definition. I'm gonna look at EJ in terms of, you know, is it fair that certain portions geographic areas of our commonwealth are more impacted by pollution and the environmental permitting and siting decisions that we've made um, in our commonwealth. So that's sort of how I look at um, EJ and the definition of EJ. And then in my work, I always look at it as two different um, aspects of that. The first aspect is the process-oriented aspect. How, has how have stakeholders been engaged? How has state outreach been implemented, how have project proponents that are asking us for siting and permitting decisions um, incorporated neighborhood um, desires and needs into their uh, proposals to us. There is that process portion of EJ. There's another portion of EJ that I think is less well known, but with our new work in the area, we're becoming increasingly familiar with it, which is about the analytical technical component. These are the type of issues that are incorporated into our um, analysis, um, our cumulative impacts assessments, and they have to do things, they have to do with things that are oriented around data, that's about inventories that we house, about how we are measuring disproportionality, and they are harder. It's the hardest thing for us to grasp right now. The process part, I think we know what needs to be done. We know when it's done well. The technical part of this is more cutting edge and difficult to get our hands around and um, equally, if not more important than that. So that's how I've been looking at it. Thank you, Rishi. Marcus, same question. What does environmental justice mean to you? Well, thank you, Diane. I'm not sure. I probably should have went first before Risha. That was an amazing response and a lot of similarities here. Um, and again, thank all of you for, for the invitation. Um, and to your point, Diane, I didn't realize how many attorneys don't like math until I went to law school. So uh, that's a commonality I learned. Um, and so for me, I think the answer to the question is, uh, you know, really just involving the people um, who live in the communities that we're working in. Um, environmental justice has uh, a broad scope, as you can imagine, um, but when you really peel off the layers, it's about, you know, how are you working with um, the people that live there where you're doing the work? Um, and people define environmental justice differently, um, notification, right, access to information, um, but really it comes down to us being open um, and informed um, and allowing the community to be a part of the process from start to finish. Um, and that way we can get, you know, localized data, real-time data, um, and also, you know, just have that community engagement that we need um, to not do good work, but to do the right work. Um, and so when we get, you know, all the players to the table early on in, in a kind of proactive manner, um, I think we can really execute um, and do the things that we want to do in those communities in a, in a positive way. Um, 
it's a little bit tricky, as you can imagine, um, tying in all the things that, that Rishi kind of hit at, the, you know, the technical aspect and the data, um, all of our, you know, scientists and engineers doing the work, um, and how do we really help facilitate those conversations, right? How do we um, tie into and, and increase um, the value of that community expertise, um, not just kind of the scientists that, that we're working with. Um, so really just being open and creative um, and doing that early engagement with the community um, from, from start to finish. Um, and that way we can really be as informed um, and educated uh, in our work as we possibly can, so. Excellent, thank you both. And appreciate you not just kind of reciting uh, the definitions on your website. <laughs> so well, you have- <laughs> you I was gonna say, it's very hard to memorize those lengthy wordy definitions, so. <laughs> yeah, who came up with those definitions? <laughs> <laughs> um, you have both been doing environmental justice for a long time. What are the top environmental justice priorities for your agency? And maybe Marcus, why don't we start with you for this one? Wow, um, it's a great question. Um, for us, <clears throat> and it may be important to give a little bit of context. I'm on the federal level, you know, generally all the priorities adjust mm -hmm. with different administrations. Um, so being that we just had a new administration, the Biden administration, and a new administrator at EPA, Administrator Reagan, and we are seeing those top priorities come out. Uh, we recently just issued our EPA strategic plan, FY22 to FY26, um, which highlights all of those priorities. Um, there are seven goals total. Um, the second really talks about environmental justice, strengthening environmental justice and civil rights. Um, so that is one of the biggest and highest priorities uh, of the administration. Um, also looking at things like climate change, um, looking at how we can be uh, more aggressive um, with chemical safety, right, and legacy pollutants. Um, so there are a lot of different high level priorities, seven goals in total, um, but really focusing on climate change, EJ, enforcement, compliance, civil rights, um, and, and, and chemical safety are, are a, few, a few of the seven, let's just say. Thank you. Rishi, how about for you? Yeah, thank you, Stacey. Um, I would say that our most uh, pressing EJ priorities for the next months and years uh, are first and foremost to comply with all of the requirements under the new um, climate roadmap statute, which Governor Baker signed into law on March 26th of this year, and which was, you know, came into being through a lot of lobbying by the EJ roundtable. Um, of which CLF is a part, um, two decades worth, and partnering with the legislative folks who made that happen um, at the state house. So there's some components of that that need to be implemented like right away, which is revisions to the Massachusetts Environmental Policy Act that that's gonna be going um, into effect by the end of this year. Um, and that has components of um, a new and more accurate environmental justice population definition. Um, it requires an, an environmental justice advisory council to help the secretariat do its work. Other things that have been a priority are implementing the environmental justice policy that was authored by EEA, which is requiring a set of EJ strategies by each of our six line agencies and offices. And that that's going to be, um, those independent strategies are gonna be uh, gathered together to become one EEA secretariat-wide strategy. So look for that sort of spring of next year. And there will be a public comment period for that around March. 
Um, so we are uh, making great headway on that. And um, it's a lot of paper, it's a lot of documenting, and it's a lot of writing um, and planning into the future for our agencies, but it's work that has needed to be done and we're finally formalizing it. And all of the efforts that we've taken in more casual ways are being pulled into that strategy and institutionalized. And then I would say the last piece, which is stretching all the way across all of our secretary, all of our um, agencies and offices is language access. We're trying to prioritize and standardize um, how we do language um, access services for folks who have limited English proficiency, you know, um, how we're going to translate documents and how we are going to provide interpreters at public hearings and um, meetings. And um, some of those things our agencies have already been following, of course, but um, the big push is to make this consistent and standard across all of our agencies. And um, I would say those are our top three priorities for the next months and year. Thank you, Rishi. Um, the next question I have is for Marcus. EPA has a mapping tool called EJ Screen. What does it do and how does it define environmental justice populations? Great question. Um, actually, EJ Screen is our federal um, mapping tool um, that we use um, to help others um, identify information in various different communities. Um, it is, want to be clear, it is just a screening tool um, and it's not necessarily a decision-making tool. Um, so it doesn't identify um, EJ communities for a host of various reasons. Um, a few of those being um, the, we don't want to define the EJ community on the federal level. Again, we want to make sure um, these communities are um, being kind of defined and, 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 and created by, the, by themselves, right? They want to, we want to make sure there's ownership um, and people defining, you know, if they are EJ community or not. Um, and a lot of that goes into who are the stakeholders in that community. Um, but the EJ screen tool um, makes its best attempt at providing local on the ground data, um, granular data if we can, I think we get down to the block level, um, to provide information about the community with respect to minority populations, with respect to income, um, sensitive populations, disadvantaged populations. Um, and we overlay that, has the capabilities to overlay that um, with environmental threats and harms. Um, so it's our attempt at creating um, a standard um, nationalized approach um, where people can use this mapping tool to um, help them formulate and, and make decisions. Um, it does, again, have some limitations. It doesn't go as far as including public health data. Um, again, it's, it doesn't actually give you a yes or no if you're in an EJ community, uh, which can be a pet peeve to some people, as understandably. Um, and hopefully what we did was put it in a place where others can build off of it. And so we're starting to see, um, particularly states, um, take EJ screen and, and kind of create their own mapping tool and tailoring to the state specific needs. Um, so EJ screen is exactly that. It's a nationally consistent tool um, that we put out there that can really help inform people um, about the demographic data and environmental data um, in their communities. So. Excellent, thank you. Uh, so getting to the state level, EEA now has a mapping tool that it recently updated to designate EJ populations in compliance with the new law. Rishi, how are the environmental justice populations defined and how does the tool work? Um, thank you for that, Stacey. I'll just direct folks to find the map 
um, if they want to. And I'm not going to state that long and boring website address. I'm just going to say go to Google and put in EJ Massachusetts and you will find, you know, one of the first or second things that comes up to our EEA EJ website. And on the website, you will see three main box links under that. One of them will be for the EJ policy. Um, another one will be around EJ demographics. And the third will be for this map. So please go and check it out. It was recently revamped in response to requirements of the Climate Roadmap Act that I referred to earlier. And what it's doing is incorporating the new environmental justice population definition for Massachusetts. So as Marcus just said, um, EJ Screen doesn't identify EJ populations. They EPA and the feds have left that to a more local level. So what we in Massachusetts have done is have taken three demographic criteria, um, race, income, and limited English proficiency language issues, and put them on this map into four different combinations. If you go to the website, you'll see what the combination is, where we've essentially identified low income and limited English proficiency, and the minority people of color data are split into two different components, which um, assures a greater level of accuracy than we had in our prior mapping. So I just encourage folks um, to go and uh, check those out because we have so many um, great resources on there. We have the historic redlining maps for urban centers in um, Massachusetts. Um, we have detailed language criteria uh, for you know, e even languages that are spoken in certain block group areas. And we're building on um, what we had there before. In addition, I wanna call people's attention to our sister agency, the Department of Public Health. DPH has recently put out its own EJ Vulnerable Health Environmental Tool. What this is, is it takes our EJ population definition and overlays four vulnerable criteria that are especially known to be affected by environmental um, pollutants. And you'll see what those four criteria are. They are things like childhood asthma um, uh, incidents that have been uh, actually seen at hospitals or the number of heart attacks that have been seen at hospitals in certain neighborhood groups. So with these two mapping tools, our own EEA, EJ mapping tool and DPH's vulnerable health mapping tool, we can get a lot of information at um, the state level and building upon you know, what EJ screen gives us in terms of its more complex layers. So I just invite folks to go check those out. Thanks, Rishi. Um, Marcus, next question is for you. Can you tell us about the Justice 40 initiative? What is it and how is EPA planning to work with it? That's uh, one of the most common questions I get. Um, and, and there's a lot of excitement around Justice 40. I, I, I love the idea and what they're doing with it. Um, for, for me, it's really, um, I guess, a concept that turned into an initiative um, and something that I think a lot of people um, feel that should be done. Um, and that is how are we ensuring um, benefits go to the most disadvantaged communities? Um, Justice 40 is an attempt to ensure that at least 40% um, so it's not a minimum of 40%, not a maximum, but at least 40% of federal benefits um, go to these overlooked, historically overlooked communities. Um, 
Of course, a lot of the challenge is how do you define that, right? What benefits, um, what are the disadvantaged communities? How do you implement that? Um, so a lot of the conversation going on now is exactly um, how to structure that, um, which, what the scope of that should be and exactly how to ensure that we get it to the right communities. So um, it is a conversation going on right now um, at the national level being influenced by people on the ground, um, community leaders and community EJ activists um, who are now part of a new advisory council um, advising the White House. And this is the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Uh, forgive me, these are all tongue twisters for me um, because there's also a advisory council who advises EPA um, and that is a national environmental justice advisory council. Um, so I'll do that again so you guys don't miss it there. So the National Council is the NEJAC is what we call it. Um, and that has been around for a long time. Um, and they have been, they're a group of stakeholders um, from various different communities across the country uh, providing advice and insight to EPA so we can help influence our, our decision-making. Um, the structure um, of, of it is a little bit, well, we expanded the structure of it with WeJack. Let's just say that. Um, EPA is one of many federal agencies. Um, and so we've always had the challenge and the burden of ensuring environmental justice, um, not just to our, our municipalities and states, but also our federal partners, right? Our, our sister and brother agencies. Um, and if anyone who has siblings um, knows that sometimes the, the younger, smaller sibling um, can't always do it the best enforcement on the bigger, older, stronger brothers. So uh, I think WeJack um, is that advisory council who now um, is instituted at every federal agency. Um, and they are gonna be providing that insight on how to practice environmental justice um, to those agencies. And I think that's how WeJack and NEJack um, are gonna work together um, to kind of move things forward. So um, a lot going on. Um, but Justice 40 right now is in the space where they're defining um, exactly what that looks like so we can roll it out to the regions uh, for, for the proper implementation. Excellent. Thank you, Marcus. And thanks for explaining the WeJack versus NEJAC and how they intersect. Um, Rishi, tell us about the Commonwealth's effort to implement the roadmap law. You've already um, started to do that, but please share some additional details. Yeah, sure. So um, there is the uh, the MEPA piece of the uh, Roadmap Act that we are in the process of promulgating new regulations for, and incorporated into that as well are our public participation provisions that have that are in line with federal Title VI guidelines for sure. These are the same ones that are paralleled within the permitting guidelines for Title VI, and also um, we've incorporated. Um, uh, uh, aspects of the new environmental justice definition into our maps that was also required under the Roadmap Act. And lastly, um, this new um, Environmental Justice Advisory Council will be convened in the next um, several weeks. So that council will also be working to confirm the population of um, the definition of environmental justice populations. And um, we will be incorporating all of those changes into our mapping tool and the way that we're using that tool to implement you know, all of our programs across the Commonwealth. The statute itself requires the secretary of EEA to incorporate environmental justice principles in all aspects of our work. 
And that gives us a lot of freedom um, to look at many of our programs and to see how we're going to put that into our grant programs, into our permitting assessments, into our siting assessments, into enforcement. So um, we've got some things that we're doing right now immediately, but we've got some bigger plans, you know, along all of these um, aspects that we're going to be looking into. The grants, especially, I find are sort of along this along the path of Justice 40, Marcus, is, is um, really exciting to think about the ways that we can help fund um, some great environmental justice advancements in our communities through our grant programs. Oh. Thank you, Rishi. Um, I actually have, the next question goes to both of you. So I guess we could start with Marcus. Um, how are your agencies working together on environmental justice initiatives? Oh, wow. Um, a lot of different ways, I think. And I, I guess I'll start with where, where Rishi picked up. Um, just coordinating resources, I think, is one of them. Um, it's something that we've always done to make sure, you know, again, we're, we're, we're targeting or trying to get the best resources to the communities who need it the most. Um, just recently, you know, I guess Congress acknowledged um, this huge need and, and just allocated $100 million um, under American Recovery Plan funding. Um, $50 million went directly to environmental justice. Um, and I believe just over 40, maybe almost 50, um, went directly, you know, are going directly to states, tribes, um, and, and other local municipalities to address um, air monitoring and, and, and air contamination. So um, there has been a huge push um, to start really looking at a lot of these historical issues and, and making those connections. Um, in addition to kind of resource in targeting specific communities, um, just continue communication. Um, I think that is key, um, making sure we have open lines of communication so we can be proactive on the issues and not just responsive. Um, we have monthly meetings with the state. Um, we also have quarterly all New England state meetings uh, where we work with the other New England states, our five other New England states. I usually name them, but I usually miss, um, forget one and get myself in trouble. So I, I stopped doing that. Um, so six New England states who we meet with um, on a quarterly basis as well. Um, we work closely, um, not just with EEA, um, but for years with, with MassDEP, who has an amazing environmental justice program manager, Deneen Simpson. Um, so making sure we're working closely together, um, staying on top of you know, the, the hot issues, um, the communities who are, are most vocal when dealing with the disproportionate impacts, um, like Chelsea and New Bedford, um, focusing our energy there. Um, so I think just having continued coordination, um, making sure we're leveraging and, and coordinating resources um, and being as responsive as we can to, to the communities who need us the most. Thank you. Rishi, anything you'd like to add? I don't know. I mean, I think Marcus really covered most of it there. We look, we look to the um, Region 1 um, EJ program very uh, much as support and partners and um, I, we have always depended on them, um, not only in terms of, you know, the financial grant money that you're talking about, Marcus, but even in terms of our staff interacting and how we share information. So um, I, I think that the, the partnership really does strengthen our program, at least, and I've always appreciate that. Great. Glad to hear about that coordination. 
Let's talk a little bit about language access. So we want to know for both of you, how are your agencies and departments engaging with limited English proficient residents? How are you really ensuring language access? And if you can talk about in some detail the work that you're doing on, you know, best practices for interpretation when you're doing translation and, you know, is that for everything, for some things, you know, share with us what you're doing. Rishi, would you like to start? Sure, yeah, um, that'd be great. So for the first thing, I, you know, one of the things about environmental justice is that you cannot, quote, fix what you haven't seen. So part of what we've needed to do is to gather the data and be able to see it in a way that we can use it. So that's why the mapping component here has been so important for us. We've taken um, American community survey data about language demographics, put it on our maps and been able to access it in a way so that all of our staff at the agencies can go to those maps and see what the um, language demographics are in any um, geographic area that they're working with. So if you if we see that an area is speaking, you know, that a census block group has 6.8% of that population are Spanish speakers who also have limited English proficiency. Well, that is an immediate way to indicate to the staff person and to everybody else that that's where we need to have translations done. That's where we need to have interpretation done. Another component of that is that we have to get out at the very first, um, at the beginning of every process to have that language access provision kick in. So the initial notification for any sort of state action or for a project proponent should include those notifications around, hey, if you need this in another language, stated in that language, please let us know and we'll make it available. So it's this thing about, quote, being seen. We can't address the problem without it being seen. The other thing is, is that we have become, I think, increasingly conscious of the fact that there are best practices that we need to incorporate down the line and standardize. And, you know, a portion of where this came to light most clearly in recent days is in the MEPA regulations and the revision of that and the way that we're trying to put together a best practices um, document that we can use both internally and externally to advise folks. The third is, is that at the Environmental Justice Office at EEA, um, my deputy director, Valerie Cardoso, is taking the lead in a lot of language access provisions so that you know, she can be contacted with any sort of questions around language, with if folks need an alternate media, you know, a quote, alternative media, meaning a non-English media um, way to get news out, to get questions out or surveys or anything else, um, you know, we can help assist with that. And we're trying to keep a storehouse of information, radio stations, um, you know, uh, uh, community-based organizations that can help out um, you know, other sorts of local channels or venues that could help with that. So um, these are all uh, efforts that we're making and, you know, they will never be, quote, enough because there was always a way to do more. Um, but all we can do is we're finally stepping into that space in this assertive way and um, trying to reach these populations that we haven't always been as effective as we could be, um, although we've always made that attempt. Thank you, Rishi. How about you, Marcus? Great, great response, Rishi, and definitely second um, all of the things that Rishi just mentioned there. 
Um, it, it's a kind of multi-pronged approach, I would say. Um, it's something that we have been doing for a long time. Um, I think it kind of goes to that educational component about what needs to be done. Um, to Rishi's point, I think the first thing is using the tools that we have to identify um, where there is a potential need. And that's where EJ screen is, is extremely helpful. Um, you know, something that we have um, done our best to approach since um, 1994, Clinton's executive order, right? 13898. Um, and even just recently, um, the new executive order from, from the Biden administration, I believe it was 13985, um, advancing racial equity. Um, and so kind of just strengthening the, this need. Um, going back to, you know, how I view and, and, and look at environmental justice, um, it's the meaningful involvement of the people, right? And if the people can't read or understand the information, they can't be meaningfully involved. Um, and so that's the kind of core principle of making sure everybody has access to the information um, so they can be meaningfully involved. Um, one thing that we do um, is work closely with our civil rights program and, and civil rights office employees um, to help support um, and collaborate on environmental justice and, and civil rights training um, highlighting uh, Title VI program requirements, um, having access, um, a coordinator and, and access to um, certain things, translation services. Um, we also have a national translation contract um, that we utilize out of our headquarters, Office of Civil Rights, uh, to support projects in, in, community, in communities that we're working with. Uh, most recently, we did a a large scale project um, with translation services surrounding a NPDES permit um, along the Chelsea Creek, um, where we provided translation services, I believe, in three or four different languages. Um, so understanding the need for translation, understanding the need for potential interpretation, um, and understanding what the difference is. Sometimes, you know, people just think information is information, right? Um, so translation is actual formal documents and, and translating them to the language needs. Interpretation is, you know, having a conversation. Um, so when we're reaching out to do outreach and picking up the phone, calling residents, um, having a sense of if there is gonna be someone on the other end of the line who may not be English proficient um, and, and having that information before you do that outreach. Um, so, your, uh, so your work can be valuable. Um, so we're looking at all of those things. Um, we're actually looking to see how we can expand the scope of our translation support, um, acknowledging it is a need and a requirement for our states. Um, so, you know, we're trying to see how we can possibly look at uh, expanding the scope of our contract to possibly support um, state translation needs as well. Um, and just looking at all the potential overlaps um, that we can capitalize on to make sure the information is accessible to the people. So. I just, you know, Marcus, you reminded me, I just wanted to add the fact that um, in Massachusetts, we already have a, a, a vendor contract with approximately 30 translators and interpreters, and that has been a longstanding thing that has been available to our staff. So we are continuing to use that. And, um, you know, we have also been working recently with the Civil Rights Office in terms of uh, expanding our language access facilities. They have been of immense help to us. So I just wanted to highlight that, Marcus, how, how much um, assistance that group has been giving us recently. Thank you both. Um, the next question is for you, Rishi. So the new Massachusetts environmental justice law requires agency consideration of cumulative impacts. 
tell us how the state and various agencies and departments are addressing this requirement. So that's the cutting edge of environmental justice work. I mean, it always has been the elephant in the room, I, I like to say, because it's um, the aspect of being able to measure and quantify in a way um, that we can make operational sort of historical environmental impacts and multiple environmental impacts and synergistic ones um, is very hard to do. And our permitting um, standards and our siting standards for the most part have looked piecemeal at the way that you know an, an air pollutant would interact with um, public health and the environment or that um, a water pollutant would interact with public. But historically our laws have not been able to um, assess or quantify or make use of a measurement that looks at multiple factors together. So that's the challenge of cumulative impact assessment. That said, that did not stop the legislature or the EJ Roundtable or the governor from requiring our secretariat to do exactly that. So one piece of this is that, one explicit piece is that in uh, uh, the DEP's air permitting program has had uh, now an explicit requirement to incorporate cumulative impact assessment into certain classes of air permits. Um, and that requirement is set to go forward by December of 2022. So we're doing DEP's agency. And as Marcus um, said, Deneen Simpson, who is the EJ uh, director for DEP, um, has taken a great role in this work, along with you know our all of our air staff and you know extremely qualified and talented technical personnel. We've all joined forces here to look at the ways in which um, uh, cumulative impact assessments can be done. You know what we're going to look at to include in there and how we're going to measure it. And we've been holding some a robust set of monthly stakeholder sessions and folks have been great about coming in and participating in those and submitting written comments as well as verbal comments at the meetings. And I just encourage more and more stakeholders to come in and do that because we can't do the work without you. And what you've been saying in those forums has been really helpful. The second piece that's explicitly stated in the statute is um, in the MEPA um, analysis, um, an assessment under the new environmental justice requirements for MEPA, we're supposed to look at both prior and current um, environmental impacts. And that, of course, is just another way of saying, you know, what are the cumulative impacts, the historical impacts um, taken together, added together with what the current impacts are. And then, by the way, glom on the one, the impact that's being proposed in the project. So in that um, state, in, in that aspect as well, we've been looking at cumulative impacts. We've gathered together an intersecretariat group that has included folks like um, the Department of Transportation. We've gotten information from um, housing. We've gotten um, you know, information from the Mass Water Resources Authority, Coastal Zone Management, I mean, a wide, our energy agencies, um, so a wide array of sources that have 
been going into this um, assessment of what we should be including in a cumulative impact analysis. So it's, um, please stay tuned, you know, the work is, is ongoing and it's pretty challenging um, and please participate in our process and tell your clients to, so. <laughs> Thanks, Rishi. And I believe one of the DEP cumulative impacts stakeholder meetings is tonight. Um, maybe yes. at six. I don't know if you have any details you want to just say. I think, yeah, I can tell you before the end of our meeting today, I think it is at six. And um, it's a great, uh, um, it's a, uh, it, it is the third one. So please register for that. You'll also see it on the DEP website. Thank you for reminding me of that, Stacey. Marcus, um, I'd love to direct the next question to you. In a sense, Rishi has given us um, the state perspective of how she's, uh, the state is applying um, its new law. State agencies are um, implementing the new law in relation to permitting. On the federal side, there are new um, EJ requirements based on, new federal, on the new federal administration. How is your agency integrating environmental justice into permitting? Mm, wow. Um well, I think, um, again, multiple different ways, Danya. Um, um, the first is, you know, we're kind of being more open, right, to, to doing different things and not having um, the formal uh, legal statutes that, that kind of Rishi mentioned there that, that are lacking. Um, so we're really re-looking at um, our current environmental laws um, and trying to be as creative as possible um, when we're addressing EJ in, in those areas. Um, some of the specific things that we're doing and have done um, is provide advance notice um, to these communities, recognizing that you know sometimes it takes a little bit longer um, and it's a bit more challenging for um, some communities to get organized and, and be responsive. So you know we don't want to just have uh, a public comment period. Um, we actually want to get meaningful comments. Um, another thing that we're doing is is extending public comment periods when necessary um, in certain communities. I think typically there's a 30-day requirement. Um, we went up to 60 days, um, sometimes I think maybe even up to 90, but um, just making sure there's enough time uh, for people to be meaningfully engaged in the conversation. Uh, we've expanded the scope of our environmental justice uh, analysis somewhat. Um, a lot formally, it was structured with just a lot of community-based information, um, and we're looking at the community holistically a little bit now. Um, I think for a long time, a lot of people looked at the environment in terms of the natural environment, right? The um, land, water, and earth. Um, and we're really trying to approach it, um, again, holistically, looking at the people, um, looking at, you know, the, the heat islands, the, the underground storage tanks, um, you know, a host of different things. And when we're looking at the environment, <laughs> particularly the people who live there. Um, so there's a lot of different things that um, we're trying to do to make sure, you know, EJ is incorporated, of course, translation, which we already talked about. Um, but when it comes to, I guess, some of the things that, that Rishi mentioned, the real big issue that these communities are dealing with is the cumulative impacts. Um, and it is a, uh, a challenge to figure out. Um, first of all, there's different ways to look at it, right? There's cumulative impacts and there's also disproportionate impacts on which are different. Um, so educating people to um, the approach when you're doing these analysis um, is a process. Um, deciding what you do and how you do it is a process, um, making sure you're getting the data, um, the most current data that's ground truth through the community um, is an effort itself. 
um, but also really figuring out how to frame the conversation when you're incorporating EJ um, in these communities. Um, and for example, when we talk about disproportionate impact, um, it's really a relationship of impacts from one population to another. Um, so defining what those populations are. Um, generally, it's that low income minority group with this environmental hazard, right? But who do you compare them to? Do you compare them to that same subset that's not low income and minority, or are you comparing them to the larger county or this larger state? Um, and so figuring out, again, the scope of that analysis. Um, cumulative impacts um, versus disproportionate, which I just described, um, go into not just the relationship uh, of the impact from one community to another, um, but how are you looking at all of the environmental threats in that community? Uh, what are all the sources um, from the air, from the water, um, and how is it impacting this one population? Um, so really understanding it um, and, and making sure everybody views it the same, uh, making sure we have the data, the community input, um, and, and really pulling it all together is, is and has been a process. Um, we do have a work group in our headquarters office of environmental justice who's been leading the forefront on this. Um, and we are trying to do what we can in the region um, to really step, step it up and move the needle on uh, when it comes to cumulative impacts and disproportionate impacts. Um, as Rishi mentioned though, there is um, a lack of a formal environmental justice law, federal law um, to address it. Um, but again, there are other current EJ environmental laws um, that we kind of use together, we can do the best that we can. Um, and we're seeing a lot of progress at state levels um, where state legislatures are actually making progress um, on cumulative impact-based laws. So um, a lot of work going into it, but it is kind of a process and, and um, a lot of education to get people up to speed on, on what it looks like and, and how to approach it the right way. Uh, excellent, thank you, Marcus. Um, we have uh, just a few more questions that we will be asking our speakers. I just wanted to note if um, participants are interested in asking a question, if you type or, or click on the Q&A function, you can type a question into the chat and we can ask our panelists. Um, but before we do that, I wanna ask both of you, you've been talking here about the coordination between the federal EPA and various states and it seems like you're taking pretty similar approaches. But the question is, how would you say that your two agencies are taking different approaches around integrating environmental justice into the work? I can take that if you want. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I, you know, that's kind of a trick question, Stacy, because I'm not sure that we are taking different approaches. Um, you know, we've we've continued to look at the EJ notion um, in the context of other environmental law, which is that the feds set a floor, but not a ceiling. So they've, they've given us a standard that we've got to meet. And then we can meet that and then we can go one better or five better. So I think we're sort of um, allied with them. Um, we get guidance from them in some ways, but then we've also been able to do things that they haven't. So for instance, one of the examples we looked at today is that EJ screen doesn't tell us where the EJ community or the EJ population is, but our but the Massachusetts maps do. So in that way, I, I, I think of us as sort of on a continuum of work together. And I don't really see us as doing this in quote, you know, different ways. Um, yeah. 
I don't know. Do you agree, Marcus? Or are we doing a bad job? I, I was going to say that was definitely a trick question there, Rishi. No, <laughs> I, uh, I don't think that um, it's a significant difference. I think the only difference um, would just be kind of limitations uh, of the difference in state and federal um, levels. Um, so she kind of, Rishi kind of hinted at it well. Um, at the federal level, you know, we'll create the high level um, policy and, 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 and guidance and the states really have the flexibility to um, to do more and, and kind of come up with stricter requirements. Um, so I think that's, we're kind of aligned as, as closely as we can be. Um, at the same time, you know, it's not our role to, you know, tell states exactly what to do, just to kind of provide the guidance and, and so they can implement it the best way, you know. Um, and so we do want to provide that flexibility so all of our states can, can tailor um, their programs to, to what fits their communities the best. Um, but I think as far as our approach to environmental justice um, is very much aligned. Um, and just kind of coordinated with the resources that we have and, and the staffing and the timing. So, but not too many huge differences from my end, Stacey. Thank you both. Thanks, Marcus. Um, this is my last question to both of you and maybe Rishi can go for, first. Um, what's the most challenging aspect of your job? Oh my gosh, Donna. I, you were asking this at the end of the call. I could take another hour. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think what's really difficult about um, this type of work, which is really civil rights work, and it's really about changing cultures, um, changing the way that you've done things in the past, is there's both an internal component to this where I may in-house, um, inside state government, be the one who reminds people or points out places where we might need to do things differently. And sometimes that's really welcomed and, you know, in, in our moment in history right now, it is being really welcomed. Um, but, you know, having been in this, doing this type of work for two and a half decades, now there have been times that it's been really difficult to convince people that things need to be done, one, for moral correct reasons, but also two, because the end result will be better in many times and ways it's more, quote, efficient you know, because you've got buy-in from all folks involved. So that internal portion is difficult. And then again, the external portion is difficult because it's an external facing uh, type of uh, function to be the EJ director where we're interacting with stakeholders and listening to what they feel, um, you know, the state could do better or improve on. And, you know, there is this notion of being really lonely of, you're the only one that's sort of the in-between, the betwixt and between um, functionality of it, I think is difficult for me. And now there's just so much work to do. <laughs> Thank you. Marcus? That's, that's similar. Um, <laughs> that is the very similar. Well, first I know I have to visit Rishi more often, so she's, none of us are that lonely, but to, to your point, I think I'm exactly <laughs> right. I think we are, um, sometimes so or the few advocates um, advocating for environmental justice. Um, and it can be challenging um, trying to, uh, you know, explain the value of doing the work in, in a certain way, uh, particularly when you're doing it to people who have other conflicting priorities and deadlines that align with their program. Um, and so that is the challenge. A little bit additional for me um, is balancing the, the scope of the job, I guess, in, in the workload, um, being that I'm the 
environmental justice coordinator for EPA New England, um, doing it for all, again, six states. Um, so if you can imagine the amount of work going on in Massachusetts, uh, you know, you multiply that a little bit. Um, significant issues in Connecticut, right across, you know, Hartford, Bridgeport, New Haven, you name it. Um, significant issues in Rhode Island. Um, a lot of work going on in Providence. So for me, um, it's really the scope of that management. Even our northern states, I, I want to make a point um, to say there's a lot of EJ issues in rural areas. So we're doing a lot of work in Vermont, um, in, in Maine, and, and work with New Hampshire as well. Um, just recently created a rural program work group. Um, and an urban program work group to focus on these specific areas. Um, but for me, the, it's really finding that balance and being responsive at the same time, making sure we're responsive and accessible um, to the hundreds of communities um, that we're here to serve. Um, so supporting our state partners, being that uh, messenger or, or mediator from headquarters to our states and our communities. Um, and again, just really being active and making progress um, across the board is extremely challenging. Um, but Love the work, I'm passionate about it, and it's a pleasure um, doing it with so many wonderful, great people. So um, up for it every day. Awesome, I love those answers, thank you. <laughs> so we have our final question uh, to go through in the next three minutes. Most, although not all of our participants in today's webinar are attorneys. So tell us, what do you think attorneys can do to support their clients in considering and integrating environmental justice into their practice. And why don't we start um, with you, Marcus, and then we'll end with you, Rishi. Okay, I'll try to be quick. Um, I would say just being um, fearless, be fearless. Um, the laws are there, you know, um, be creative. That's what lawyers do. We don't necessarily tell uh, what is right and wrong. We argue, right? We argue our points and our perspective. Um, a lot of times um, the argument can be a tougher one to make, but it's there. Um, and that I think sets the stage uh, for moving the needle for the, the type of legislation that we really need. Um, and it's really a building block. So, you know, go out there, be aggressive, look at all of the laws that are in place, environmental laws, whether it's the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, um, but, you know, be creative, be aggressive and, and be fearless when you're um, advocating and, and advancing EJ issues. That's a great answer, Marcus. I, and I think um, my response echoes that there's a piece here. I feel like we now have these really concrete environmental requirements, you know, it, that have now come into being pretty explicitly through the roadmap statute. So as lawyers, I think we have very concrete um, uh, reasons to advise our clients as to um, requirements and standards that have to be met. And that in addition, of course, there's this moral component, but if that doesn't sway a client or, you know, there's other competing priorities, um, there is this component of, you know, if we need to have a project in place, if we need to get um, a job done, you know, and if there's other um, issues that we need to uh, uh, accomplish an end result, you know, the most efficient way to do that is to have everybody at the table that is going to have a voice in the decision. And now more explicitly so, because the statute is requiring this voice to be heard and to be uh, documented and incorporated into the decision. So I would say to lawyers who are advising clients in this forum, please um, look at the law, look at the tools that are available and educate yourself on those tools and tell your clients 
that they're real things, they're concrete. Um, and um, it's not um, as amorphous as it was in the past. There are real standards that need to be met. Thank you both. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Rishi and Marcus, for your generosity of time and, and your responses. And thank you to all the participants who uh, sat in on this um, on this program. And thank you to the BBA. And then we look forward to seeing you uh, all of you at our next program. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you, thank you everyone you. so much. Bye everyone.